Kim Vu. Welcome to Vietnola, the show about being Vietnamese in New Orleans. Vietnola is our window into our Vietnamese community in New Orleans and a bridge to Vietnam. We're a member of the family of shows on the podcast network, itsneworleans.com. Xin chào quý vị. Đây là bài Vietnola, chương trình pháp hành về cộng đồng Việt Nam ở New Orleans. Vietnola là một cánh cửa để nhìn vào cộng đồng ở New Orleans và một cảnh nối với quê hương. Vietnola là một số trình diễn trong chương trình pháp hành podcast itsneworleans.com. Today on the show, we'll have a conversation with Cam Tu. Navigator for the Affordable Care Act, she's also a community organizer for a nonprofit organization called Southern United Neighborhoods. Cam moved from the United to the United States in 2002 from Vietnam and eventually landed in New Orleans a year and a half ago in part to work with Vela, the Vietnamese American Young Leaders Association, and quickly she became a community organizer. She excelled in her career to her pr- present position at Southern United Neighborhoods and has been tasked with the daunting objective of explaining the Affordable Care Act to the general public, particularly the Vietnamese American public in Louisiana and the New Orleans area. She's joined us today to share her story and also help educate us on healthcare costs and options in this day and age. Cam, thank you so much for coming and welcome. Thank you for having me here, Kim. Uh, let's let's go a little bit into your background. It sounds like you were at a point in your career in organizing where you had to make a decision. Were you going to be, did you want to pursue organizing or did you want to maybe go to grad school? What prompted your position, uh, your decision and, and to come here as well to New Orleans as opposed to Atlanta where you're from? Um, I mean, I came to New Orleans. I mean, it was... Um for love. I mean, my um, then boyfriend um, is from New Orleans, so that's why I moved here. And I mean, I also visit New Orleans for um, several times. And I think I really fell in love with the vibrancy, vibrancy of the city. And maybe then, more so than your ex. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. And then to learn. Um, and I think especially when I visited Vela, mm-hmm. um, to see how deeply rooted they are in the Vietnamese community. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me at that point in my life, having grown up in Atlanta and then going to school at Vanderbilt to where there wasn't a lot of, um, there was not a big Vietnamese community, especially at Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. You know, there were about five Vietnamese in total, um, of the whole school that I knew. Let's back up. We just discussed this before the show. There's probably actually by number more Vietnamese people in Atlanta is that mm-hmm. is that correct? I think so. I think I remember. I don't remember the exact number, but that I believe that is the case when I looked it up a while ago. But I think we both agree that somehow here in New Orleans, the Vietnamese community is much more prevalent, or it feels more present in New Orleans. I think so. I mean, it doesn't um, it doesn't guarantee that you know their voices are always heard mm-hmm. by you know other groups or by you know city politicians, you know, right? But um, I believe I heard a statistics um, maybe in like the documentary called A Village Called Versailles mm-hmm. that New Orleans is actually the most pop like most densely populated like in terms of Vietnamese population in the Versailles community. Interesting. So though Atlanta may have more, it's maybe over 
maybe less of a centralized community geographically. Right. It's more spread out. Mm-hmm. And you're actually, your folks have a background in Louisiana before Georgia, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, just my dad. Okay. Um, my, basically two of my uncles came to the U.S. right after 1975, um, the mm-hmm. fall of Saigon. And they set up, you know, in Beerus, in Blackamine Parish. Um and then, you know, they brought my dad over um, in 96. And then my dad lived there. And basically, um, they owned the, basically the only Chinese restaurant. Oh, really? In Beerus. Yeah, it's funny <laughs> because I went to Beerus to help some people sign up for the Affordable Care Act. Uh-huh. And I just, oh, you know, my uncle owns a restaurant here. And they said, is your uncle named this? And I was like, yes. It's like, well, it's the only <laughs> restaurant in town. Um, and then my dad works there. And um, in How 2000... How many years later? And it's still your uncle. <laughs> it's still my <laughs> uncle. And it's actually after, um, even after Katrina. Um, I believe because of Katrina, like the restaurant was like destroyed in uh-huh. a lot of ways. But then, you know, they came back and they rebuilt it. Um, when you go into the restaurant, you see like a sign um, that basically thanks the community, you know, in their rebuilding effort, you know, and it's signed the Nguyen family. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, another Nguyen. <laughs> yeah. That's that's a great story. I mean, eventually he left Pacamine's Parish, however, and he left Louisiana. Do you know if your parents ever had any interest in staying and in, in, in settling in New Orleans instead of Atlanta? And if if so, why did they leave? Mainly my dad left. Um, I mean, my mom and I came over um, when he was already in, in Atlanta, so it made sense for us to just stay there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he left because of the... Um, in his words, lack of employment opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, and think that in the in like Burris, there was a lot of like either like fishing or what he did was um, to work in my uncle's restaurant. Um, and there wasn't a lot of other opportunities for employment. And I think in two, around two thousand, that was when Atlanta was kind of like growing a lot in terms of like other industry like factories companies and that's where he found you know a job and he moved there um yeah and then my mom and i came over okay how do they feel about you moving back to louisiana and to new orleans they were kind of hesitant at first i mean you know it's it's tough for them because i'm the only child too so you know you get i mean growing up you did get you know spoiled at the same time you get all of the responsibilities right right? and how can you leave your parents right what kind of it was a very (laughs) (laughs) and i remember you know in college um i i remember very vividly one night i was just sitting and having to come to like to really think about this like this decision whether Mm -hmm. you know i will allow myself to go far away from my parents or, you know, because I am the only child and it's very tough for them in the it's U.S. It's very unusual not, as well in a Vietnamese family. for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not, you know, they don't speak English. So having me there, like, gives them a lot of support. Just not, not just log- like logistically speaking, but also, you know, um, emotionally. Um, How old are your parents? In their 60s or? No, they're actually very young. Um, in comparison, my mom is 48 and my dad, I think. This year is uh, 50. And you just came here in 2002. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing your uncle sponsored your family to come over? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And you were already how old by the time you came here? 
I was turning 12. Okay. So you're still speaking Vietnamese like a native. It's much better than mine. <laughs> I can tell the little bit we've chatted. Yeah. I mean, I speak like a native, but a lot of like the grammar structure and the vocabulary, you know, it stopped at like the sixth grade level when I came here, <laughs> right. um, which doesn't hurt in terms of organizing because you, wa- you don't want to throw big words at people anyway. Sure. Now let's talk about that. So you started at Vela and... Mm-hmm. You you just immediately went into organizing and 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 loved it. Or what what was that process like? Because I read that actually you had a strong interest in archaeology in college, uh-huh. right? Yeah, and I mean, I wanted to be um, um, an archaeologist until my basically my senior year. Okay, um, and I remember, I, you know, I went to Greece and then I went to Peru to do excavations. Um, it might be hard for people to like see me as like this little girl doing like pickaxing, <laughs> but I did. I pickaxed uh, through clay um, in the sun for like two weeks straight at a time. Um, but then I think it was in Peru where I saw basically a lot of economic inequality that is, mm-hmm. you know, happening in the present time. And I think that was the moment when I kind of realize that I'm actually more interested in what's going on mm-hmm. right now than um, back then. Not to say that, you know, learning your heritage, you know, and your cultural um, issues in the past don't matter, right? Sure. But, you know, I found that I'm more interested in that. So I came back to school in that one, you know, senior year, got really into organizing. And I took a class um, at Vanderbilt. It was called change in social movements in the 1960s and that was one of the moments when it really clicked to me that I really want to do organizing as you know a way to change what's going on as opposed to going straight to like public policy or going straight to law or you know becoming like a politician or doing research I wanted to do organizing Um, and then I was really I feel like very lucky to be able to have a an organizing job right after college um, with Vela. So when you left your parents to follow your boyfriend and this job with Vela, <laughs> was your boyfriend at the time Vietnamese? No, he he was he's um, North African. Okay, yeah. Un- yeah. an unusual combination, I think, for <laughs> for even this country, let alone mm-hmm. um, our our culture, our Americanized version of Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, it was tough. Um, I wouldn't say that it was tough on my parents because of who I was dating. It's just mainly, you know, I was moving away. Um, But for my parents, I think in terms of who I'm dating, they prefer Vietnamese guys simply because of the language. Um, They want to be able to communicate Communicate. with that person. But... Mm -hmm. You know, they've learned, like, my mom's English is getting better. And at the end of the day, um, they only care, you know, does he care about you? You know, how is he treating you? Um, and those things, you know, triumph over everything else. Yeah, my experience is Vietnamese parents, they have a, a meaner bark than their actual bite. You know, they threaten mm-hmm. you with disowning if you, like, don't get <laughs> straight A's. And then you get, like, an A- minus, and they're like, oh, okay, whatever. Maybe yeah. that's, I feel like that's never been my experience because I'm the only child. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> you needed some older sisters and brothers. You needed someone to be compared to. That's what you I mean, no, no. They, they, they definitely still compare me to, you know, my cousins, right, right, you know, right. their friends, you know, 
you know, children. But in terms of like disowning, I don't think you know that ever came up or that ever was like a, <laughs> it's not even like a half joke, you right, know, right, threat right. because I'm the it's only child. Just you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at Vela, was healthcare your first topic that you? started kind of your professional field in no i actually got started with education already okay um and i mean especially in new orleans in the new orleans educational landscape a lot of work is being done on you know education equity Mm -hmm. you know you know like neighborhood schools are closing um being closed down you know lack of resources decentralization um, privatization of our schools and just a lot of, and also like push outs of you know certain types of students what what drew you to the direction of healthcare? I mean it's just mainly fate you know uh, I mean I'm still young and I will admit it you know, admit it that you know it's I, I don't get to choose a lot of the jobs I can get and I wasn't particularly into healthcare, but I think with Obamacare um, is what I was really passionate about, and especially for the Vietnamese community, who, from my experience working for um, for this job, have seen it help the Vietnamese community a lot, and especially um, Vietnamese community where they tend to vote Republican, you know, and. There can be also a lot of misinformation coming from the Vietnamese media. So this work, I feel like it comes at a point where you can let the Vietnamese community see more. Talk about your day-to-day. So you are you going out alone into the community, uh, into rural areas or into the urban areas? Uh, is it How are the in- introductions made in this incredibly private, insular community? Mm-hmm. You're not from here, and yet you're talking to most people who have lived their entire American lives here. Mm-hmm. What is that like? Um, the day-to-day changes depending on what the needs are. You know, one day I can go to the airport to try to catch cab drivers. I mean, those are not Vietnamese um, mainly. Um, but that's like, you know, the non-Vietnamese populations I'm also reaching out to. In terms of the Vietnamese community, I think having worked with Vela helped me a lot. Um, and also having worked with another organization called the Restaurant Opportunity Center. Yes. On a grant that is specifically for um, Asian restaurant workers also helped because it allowed me to know um, the two Vietnamese churches, one in the East and then one in the West Bank, and know, you know, the priests and knowing the people who work for them. Which, um, pretty which well. Which churches are those? Yes, uh, in the east, that's Mary Queen of Vietnam Church, and in the West Bank, that's Saint Agnes Letitan Church. Okay. Um, so knowing those two um, churches, as well as knowing um, more temples, like Bode Temple is another one, where you can you know post things in a church bulletin, right? Or they let me table, you know, during mass, where I can you know give out information. And after that, after the initial contact, I also did a lot of canvassing, you know, where you, I just leave flyers at mailboxes, not inside the mailbox, but just outside the mailboxes for people to, to read. Um, and they would be bilingual um, in the East so far. But and after the initial contact, a lot of it is like word of mouth. You know, after I help some people and then, you know, they would tell people at work, they would tell their family, they would tell their friends. 
like I feel like I've never seen a community where the word travels so fast. Very gossipy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How, how are you alone in this process? Is there another Vietnamese American or working with you on this? No, um, I think I'm the only uh, Vietnamese speaking navigator for the Healthcare Act. Are you working with, you mentioned Vela and Mary Queen of Vietnam and the other church. Are, are they kind of sending assistance to kind of help you with this? Um, in terms of assistance, like volunteers, mm-hmm. no. But they let me, you know, tap into their events, tap into their resources, like, for example, the church bulletin, where, you know, basically everyone reads those. Um, and Vela, you know to flyer at certain events that they hold. Um, and MQVN has always been very receptive of me putting flyers right where they um, have the client intake form. So. so what is the objective? Is the objective to get as many people signed up as possible or to educate? When, when they contact you through word of mouth, what are they calling for? Help to sign up or you to explain it to them directly or which mm-hmm. so it's actually very interesting because recently i've noticed like a shift in what they say when they contact me so in the beginning like let's say october and even in november a lot of the phone calls have been so i've been hearing that you do work on obamacare and they would use the term obamacare um you know not the affordable care act um and they, they would be like can you tell me more you know or well my income is this how about that? Um, they, w- they have a lot of questions, but now the phone calls that I get is very much straightforward. I want to sign up. How do I do that? Um, and also because I've learned from experience that sometimes they, because of the miscommunication, because they don't, um, or might, they might not understand, you know, the English-speaking media, they think that they would, um, our Vietnamese folks tend to think that you have to sign up for Obamacare, right? right. right? And, you know, and I just give them a disclaimer, No matter, even if they didn't bring it up. I would say, you know that you don't have to sign up for Obamacare. Um, you just need to have health insurance in general. You can do it, you know, privately or you can do it through Obamacare. If you have Medicaid, that counts as health insurance. If you have Medicare, then... You're not really eligible for Obamacare, but that counts as health insurance. Um, but giving them that disclaimer um, to make sure they know that they don't have to sign up, but it's a choice that they can take. But most of them still sign up. Now, you mentioned in passing earlier that the Vietnamese American population is heavily, heavily Republican voting. How is this going over? You know, Do you find resistance to what you're trying to tell people, given that this is something coming out of the Democratic presidency? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it's very interesting because I don't, I haven't seen any political resistance within working with the Vietnamese community, even though, you know, they know the law and the product as Obamacare, you know, is linked to Obama. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very much, I think they realize that it helps us or it helps me and my family and so I'm going to take advantage of that um, what has been tough in this job is to um, basically talk about Medicaid expansion mm-hmm. um, and like as navigators we're not allowed to talk about Medicaid expansion unless you know um, on like on the air um, it's very heavily political 
right? Okay. Um, but it's very interesting to see the contrast between this political. Um, Let's back up. Why okay. aren't you allowed to talk about Medicaid expansion in the same conversation as you're talking about Obamacare? Well, I think is um, a lot of it is politics. Um, Who is prohibiting you from talking about it? Um, our funders. Okay. Yeah, and basically the federal <laughs> government. <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, so, um, but in terms of, although, you know, I am allowed to explain to someone, let's say, oh, well, why don't I qualify for Obamacare? And I would say, well, you make less than this. And they would say, what, do I qualify for Medicaid? And I say, well, no. And then I would explain to them it's because there's no Medicaid expansion. Um, but in terms of, you know, we cannot take any political stance, right? Um, but yeah, and it's very interesting to see how a community that can vote very Republican at the same time when it's Obamacare, they, it's not about politics to them. It's really about helping their family. Which in, should have been how the dialogue in Washington, D.C. should have gone, <laughs> right? I mm-hmm. mean, at the end of the day, you have Republican voters who are who see this as an asset in their lives. The, the, the demographic you're talking to, is it the, the economic spectrum? Is it all over the place or is it primarily, you know, working, uh, middle class working or is it primarily non-working, uh, low income? Where, where do most of the people you're talking to fall? I would say there has been um, several unemployed people that have come to me. Um, and again, it depends on their household income, not just them. Um, and But mostly working class. I mean, when I do, re- um, do outreach, I would have like the whole income like range, you know, the sign posted up so that people can see. Because most of the misconceptions, um, assumption is that is it helps only poor people mm-hmm. whereas that's not the case it actually is meant to help people with average income which is most people in the u.s and so i think that's why most people that approach me already fall within that um right that the ones range. who kind of know already that yeah. they'll be able to benefit from this program mm-hmm. i'm going to ask you to explain to me and our listeners <laughs> in just a second but before i do that i want to hear uh, a little more about I want to go into our segment called Vietiquette where we explore the quirks and the charm of of culture and etiquette both here in Vietnamese New Orleans and Vietnam and I asked you to share something that you find um, that you have some kind of warmth towards or you think is kind of funny or interesting um, and why don't you share with our listeners what you like about the Vietnamese culture mm-hmm. I think it's here and in Vietnam <laughs> I mean, I can think of two things. Um, the first thing just like, actually came to my mind because of this, the work that I've been doing is like around food. Everyone offers <laughs> me food. You know, if I help them during lunchtime, then they would want to give me lunch. If I help them, you know, like at night when they got off work, then they would still give me dinner. And actually, it's really nice that they're not very business oriented at all. I come into, you know, the house and I would expect them to be like, okay, let's get this done. And or I, I have that attitude too. Let's like, let's get this done. But they always like, why don't we eat first? You know, <laughs> you're gonna be hungry. So let's eat first and then work 
later. It's very much like how how are you feeling as opposed to let's get this done so that you know I can get my health care. And it sounds like no matter what income bracket they are, they're still offering yeah. you a mm-hmm. meal. And they offer me, and I they would just pack me several dishes. They have you know I remember this one lady you know get got me some pho with you know um, a dessert, and they would be like, oh you want like coke you want water and i would be like you know you don't have to and it was just like i'll give you water (laughs) and it's very like kind of like forceful on us by now i'm just like okay (laughs) i enjoy being fed so (laughs) the the tiger mom syndrome Mm -hmm. it's real it's actually real it's not just a book (laughs) (laughs) yeah and then um another thing is just the way that you know vietnamese folks um talked to each other and even like talked to me um Mm -hmm. very down to earth um and you know i mean there are people can interpret it like in many different ways but in terms of having done work in organizing um like you know how folks can throw words out like accountability transparency you know <laughs> engagement and it's very hard to be able to do that with, when you're talking to vietnamese folks because right. there are no buzzwords like that and you right. kind of have to explain to them what exactly do you mean by accountability and you have to basically be very straightforward very they can they can tell when when you're not um engaged in them yeah. Mm-hmm. And they can tell that you're basically just spilling out stuff for them to buy. Right. It, it, you can't have a churned out conversation mm-hmm. that is prepackaged. Right. Not when you're having dinner or lunch or <laughs> <laughs> film the blank meal. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you have an interesting way of put it, putting it. It can be interpreted in many different ways. Sometimes it feels like a little nosy, like. I don't, I'm trying to help you figure out healthcare. Why do you need to know if I have a boyfriend, right? It's a little (laughs) bit like, why do you Mm -hmm. need to know my age and decide if I'm too young to be single or too old to be single, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I think your, your point is well taken. You know, this is a community that wants to feed you and, Mm -hmm. and also wants to tell you the truth whether it's pretty or not right yeah and i think it's also because it's such like a close-knit community where you know when there's someone new mm-hmm. i feel like those a lot of those questions you know those everyday questions they give you are to fill out who you are um to see where you're coming from you know why is she here why is she doing this work who is she really you know outside mm-hmm. of this work that she's doing so why don't you share with us uh some of your knowledge on the affordable care act Um, particularly the things that people that you're talking to are most surprised about. You brought up the income bracket Mm -hmm. and that a lot of people assume that this is just for low-income people. Um, Why don't you share some some of that stuff with us? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, one thing to just have out there is that the Affordable Care Act and Obamacare is not just like a product, right? It's not just buying health insurance. It's a piece of legislation. It's, it's a law. So it has many components to it. Like, um, for example, pre-existing condition. You know, being having that covered, is I feel like it's just mind-blowing for me. I think it's, it's a game it, changer. It's, yeah, it's a big change. And a lot, of, like the first question that I always get from people is why do we have to have health insurance? I don't get it. Why? You know, it's, you know, infringing on my freedom. 
Um, and some Vietnamese folks would ask me that too, but when I explained it to them, well, but look at this, you know, pre-existing conditions are being covered. Um, so that's why we all need to have health insurance so that, you know, the sick and the elderly can get, you know, a better deal. So it's kind of like we're all in this together. And when I explain the Affordable Care Act like that for them, it started to make sense. It's like, okay. There's a reason why I need to have health insurance. And, you know, even if you don't have health insurance and you have, like, an emergency, you know, like, you the operations will still get done. You know, you're not going to be denying care. But what happens when you don't have health insurance and you have a lot of costs from an accident or from, like, you know, a big illness is that it drives up the health care costs for other people, too. So um, that's one thing that's important to keep in mind. And... Um, another thing is, you know, now the healthcare website is working extremely well. And when you see what's involved in the website, you can see like why there was a lot of issues because it involves so many other uh, federal agencies in mm -hmm. verifying your information, in determining how much subsidies you get. Um, and like that's another piece of the um, of Obamacare that's um, based on your income bracket. You would receive, um, you might be able to receive government subsidies to help you pay for the monthly mm -hmm. payment. So that money doesn't go, you know, oh, when I go see the doctor, you know, it's not the money you use for that, but it's just like car insurance. You have to pay a monthly um, payment. Actually, for some people who can actually, like they would actually get subsidies to help them reduce their deductible. So the deductible is the amount of money um, you have to pay upfront first before the health insurance starts helping you, right? Um, and, you know, it can go from like 4600 to like 900 in a plan that is sponsored by Obamacare. So wow. it's, it's, a, it's huge, yeah. um, you know, for people who don't have 4600 in their bank account. It's the difference it's between declaring bankruptcy and not declaring mm -hmm. or trying to declare bankruptcy. Right. Yeah. And I think that's what um, and that's why like you need to have health insurance or that's what Obamacare aims to do that is to prevent bankruptcies, which is has been happening a lot in our country. Um, and then another piece of the legislation is preventative care is free and especially for um, pregnant women. Um, a lot of the care is free and um Health insurance companies cannot have there's a there's a cap on the lifetime limit. There was a cap and now um, there's no cap. So let's say before the cap could be you know two hundred thousand of what a lifetime limit. Explain what that is. Well, that means that after this after that amount, the health like health insurance is not going to help you anymore. So they'll so, only pay up to two hundred thousand. So if someone, like for example, right, yeah. Okay. But now that that, you know, cap is off, it's good for the consumers because no matter what, health insurance will keep on helping you. And so the federal government is paying for this or are they using uh, a private vendor to have provide this kind of coverage? It's both. Um, the subsidies come from the government, but, you know, it's the health insurance companies that are pay that are selling the health insurance plans. What has been one of the more positive comments you've gotten from this? From the people I work with? Mm -hmm. I mean, the people I come across? I mean, um, I mean, it's a very general positive comments like, oh, 
that's cheap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've only worked with um, mostly the people I've worked with, you know, fall within that income bracket, mm-hmm. um, especially within the Vietnamese community. So they always qualify for some kind of subsidies. And, you know, like, let's say, for example, one person, one family that I worked with, you know, the health insurance is um, 31 cents a month. Wow. And the deductible was 900 the maximum out-of-pocket cost was um, 1400 And, you know, you go to the doctor, it's only $15. You go to a specialist, it's only $35. Prescription drugs was only, you know, $17. So it's a good deal. Um, right. And, you know, when they see that, they're just like, wow, it's cheap. Like, wow, that's great. Right. And these are people who ordinarily wouldn't qualify for Medicaid. And now this is a health care option for, mm-hmm. for this segment. Thank you so much for talking to me and our listeners about this. I think it has been a daunting task trying to understand what's going on and who it affects and who it helps, um, you know, not just on a macro level, but as an as individuals. Mm-hmm. Do you have any uh, links or or sorts of uh, information, you know, contact information you want to give our listeners? I mean, it's very simple. You know, healthcare.gov is, of course, if you haven't checked out the website, um, you can also see your available plans um, to, like, even before you begin an application. But really, it doesn't cost you anything to apply. And there are two steps. You apply, you know, you see your subsidies, if you qualify for it, and then you see the different plans, and then you enroll. So if you see all of that and you don't like it, then just don't enroll. Um, No one um, really forces you and there's no commitment. Um, And even after you choose a plan, you know, and if you change your mind, then just don't pay the first monthly, um, the first premium. Okay. You know, and um, so there's a lot of room for you to not um, be committed. Um, I think that's done for a very good reason. And another good website to know, um, it's very easy. Just go on google.com and then search for the Kaiser Family Foundation Subsidy Calculator. You can also find it through Obamacare Subsidy Calculator. And the first link that shows up um, will be the one that you can use to input, you know, your income, how many people are in your household, your age, um, whether you smoke or not, um, because smokers do unfortunately have to pay higher for health insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, it will give you a, an estimation of, well, how much subsidies will you get? Can you spell that for us, the Kaiser Family Subsidy Calculator, so that we can all make sure we're putting it into Google correctly? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, that's a very good uh, suggestion. The Kaiser um, Family Foundation is K-A-I-S-E-R. Family is F-A-M-I-L-Y. And foundation is um, F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N. We should just put that into Google and everything we need will pop up? Yes. Okay, great. Yeah. I've done that a lot of times, so I'm confident it's the first one you see. Okay, great. And you, what's next for you? You want to keep doing this? Or are you going to go back to school? Are you going to stay in New Orleans? <laughs> I do want to stay in New Orleans, although um, I am also thinking about grad school. Um, whether, you know, it be public policy or sociology, um, I feel I want to, you know, um, learn more about the public policies like process and then how to use my organizing experience to bring the people 
into our policy making because I feel like most of the time the people who are you know we pay taxes, we run you know the the government is run based on our money. Um, at the same times, at the same time, a lot of times we are left out of that process, right? Um, so how to systematically involve them, not just through you know a forum, but to actual real decision making process. Um, And I would love to be able to stay in New Orleans. I don't know if I can get into a school or, you know, um, a school that is here. Sounds like you're being a little bit (laughs) modest, (laughs) But because I feel like it's great for me um, to be in New Orleans. There's such a rich history of organizing. It's a a city of very, very resilient people. Um, The black community, the Vietnamese community, the growing Latino community. Um, the working class community, um, it's just, a, and the Asian community in general, um, the Arab community, and they all have their own struggles. Um, at the same time, you know, they've been here and they've been very resilient wow. and very, very incredibly smart too. So I feel like I do have a, still a lot to learn from New Orleans. Good to hear you'll be sticking around. We're <laughs> all very lucky for people like you who are doing really difficult work. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me here. That's our show today. Thank you so much for joining us at home, at work, on your phone, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing. And a very special thanks to today's guest, Gam Tu Nguyen. Tune in next week to listen to us chat some more here on Vietnola. Our show is produced by Kim Vu and Grant Morris. Our technical director is Chris Keo. Our web guru is Dr. Cliff Brigden. Our theme song was composed by Taylor Smith and performed by the Swamp Lilies. The fabulous audio quality of this show is brought to you in part by PreSonus Audio Electronics. PreSonus makes some of the best audio recording and live sound products, including the Studio One music production software, Studio Live digital mixing consoles, Airs Studio monitors, and much more. Visit www.presonus.com for more information. You can follow us on Twitter at itsneworleans.com. You can like us on Facebook. We're at It's New Orleans. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to our other Vietnola shows on our website, itsneworleans.com, as well as our other shows, Happy Hour, Out to Lunch, Mindset, True the Game, Midnight, and Midnight Menu Plus One. Keep up with all kinds of fun happenings here at Vietnola by getting on our web mailing list. Sign up on our website, itsneworleans.com. Vietnola was recorded today in the lovely city of New Orleans. If you'd like to be a guest on Vietnola, we'd love to have you. Drop us a line. You'll find all the information on our website. Vietnola is produced by INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com. For everyone here at Vietnola, thanks for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you back here next week for our next episode of Vietnola. Until then, I'm Kim Vu. Bye now. Summer's almost over, but at Old Navy, the styles are as hot as ever. Get to Old Navy now for 30% off all jeans, 40% off all dresses, and 50% off all tees. That's right, get 30, 40, and 50% off all your favorite styles for the whole family, plus up to 75% off clearance. Hurry in fast. These deals won't last. The sale ends soon at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid in store 822 to 828 and online 822 to 824. Excludes in store clearance, bubbles, active, licensed, and men's package tees.